It is with great joy and conviction that we sing, Great is thy faithfulness. For indeed, Lord, your faithfulness to us exceeds our imagination because it is infinite, because you are an infinite, eternal, and immutable God. And therefore, Lord, we rest in this comforting truth and reality of the greatness of who you are, knowing as we will hear tonight, as we will learn tonight, that there is absolutely nothing in our lives that we should ever be anxious over. And I pray, Father, that as we look to your word, as we open up your scriptures to to see the teaching of your infallible word concerning the truth about anxiety and how we as Christians are to deal with it properly to your glory and to our good. Lord, we pray that the teaching of your word will not fall on deaf ears or hard hearts, but that it will go forward tonight by the convincing power of the Holy Spirit and that there would be a greater degree of sanctification worked in all our hearts as your people, a greater equipping because of a greater understanding that the Spirit would illuminate each one of us with according to the truth of your word and how we are to flee from this sin called anxiety and to walk in greater faith, trusting you with all our hearts. We pray these things for the sake of our Lord Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take the word of God and let us open to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start reading at verse 19 and read all the way to the end of the chapter. We're starting in verse 19 because verse 25 begins with that wonderful word, therefore. So why is our Lord Jesus saying, therefore? He is, he is deducing something from what he's just said. So that's why we need to start at verse 19. Because verse 19 helps us get the full context of this wonderful teaching about anxiety. So Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19, let us pay close attention to the recorded words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of the living, eternal God. I want to begin our study this evening in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, by asking a rather simple but pointed question. Do you ever struggle with anxiety? Are there ever times or seasons or even just moments when you feel overcome, as it were, with a gripping fear about the future that you can neither see nor control? You are concerned about what may be called legitimate things, but your concern is over the top. It's obsessive. It is all you can see and think and feel. In fact, it is a concern that actually cripples you, immobilizes you. It controls you, whereby you end up losing touch with reality. Has this ever happened to any one of you? What I'm describing is the vice grip of anxiety. And I firmly believe that if we were all painfully honest with ourselves and with one another, we would have to admit and confess that there have been occasions or seasons where our greatest struggle 
has been with feeling deeply anxious or worried. Indeed, there is no one who can honestly say, I have never worried a day in my life. Such a claim is not only delusional, but arrogant. And at the very least, it is a claim that falls just short of being human. Because frankly, there seems to be nothing more human for fallen creatures like us living in a fallen world than to be given over to a greater or lesser degree to anxiety. So I ask the question, do you ever struggle with anxiety? And the answer for all of us has to be yes. But following this question, we have to raise another. What do you do with your anxiety or to be more exclusive what do you do as a Christian with your anxiety answering this question brings us to our study in Matthew chapter 6 25 through 34 where our Lord Jesus expresses very plainly for us as his people three different times do not be anxious do not be anxious. As human as it may be for us to be anxious, yet it's not normal. It's not normal. God did not create us to be an anxious people. Anxiety was never part of God's original creation. So the only reason there is anxiety is due to man's fall into sin. In fact, anxiety is the result of man's fall into sin and is therefore the product of sin. Hence, there is nothing normal about anxiety because anxiety does not conform to God's righteous standard for the way he has created us and redeemed us to live for his glory. This is why then when we come to the word of God as here in Matthew 6, we have a thrice-repeated command. Do not be anxious. So then when we are anxious as Christians, let's be clear. We are sinning against God. We are. We are sinning against God. Anxiety is a sin. And it is a sin whereby, follow me here, whereby we actually distrust God's providence to govern our lives to our good. It is a sin, therefore, rooted in unbelief. When we are anxious, we are not walking by faith. We are walking by sight. So as a Christian, how do we combat anxiety? How do we win the battle against this sin? What will it take for us to put anxiety to death? Well, answering these questions takes us now into our exposition of Matthew 6, 25 through 34. I want us to underscore and unpack two major points. First, the reasons against anxiety. Second, the remedy for anxiety. The reasons against anxiety, the remedy for anxiety. To begin with, then, let's consider first the reasons against anxiety. And look with me once more 
and verses 25 through 32 here in Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, as we begin considering this first major point of our study, we must recognize that our Lord Jesus opens up this teaching on anxiety with the word, therefore. What this word is indicating is that this entire passage from verses 25 through 34 cannot be separated from what has preceded it. In fact, since Jesus employs this term, therefore, as the launching pad into his teaching about anxiety, it is clear that what he will say about this problem and its solution is a conclusion to what he has just been expounding. So, to keep the subject before us in its proper context, we need to consider very briefly what our Lord teaches in verses 19 through 24. In this passage, Jesus challenges us and calls us to live life in the fullness of of an unfettered and unencumbered devotion to God and his kingdom. But how is this done? First, it is treasuring heavenly treasures as opposed to treasuring earthly treasures. This is what Jesus commands in verses 19 and 20. What does this mean? It means that as Christians, what we prize and value and cherish more than all are the things of God and his kingdom. So then, more than our marriage and family, more than our education or career, more than our health and diet, more than our hobbies or personal projects. None of these legitimate earthly things should ever be what we live for. They must never be our treasure, despite how precious or valuable they may be. But rather the treasure of a true child of God are the things of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We treasure heavenly treasures. This means practically that we treasure our growth in grace and the development of greater Christ-like character. It means that we are devoted to the building up of God's kingdom purposes through the local church fulfilling the Great Commission by reaching and teaching converted sinners to become disciples of Christ. This is what we're devoted to as believers in Christ. So everything else in our lives, which is of this earth, comes under subjection to God and his kingdom. Secondly, the focus and vision of our life 
are the things of God and his kingdom. This is what Jesus taught in verses 22 and 23. It is the difference between having an eye that is healthy or having an eye that is bad. A bad eye is metaphorical for having a vision that is worldly and earthly. All one sees by such a vision is this, and all they understand about life is that it is all about what you can get and gain from this world only. And Jesus condemns such a vision of life as being nothing but great darkness. However, an eye that is healthy is having a spiritual vision which is single-minded on Christ in all that he has called us to be and do for his glory. This is how a Christian is to see everything in the world. It is with Jesus Christ at the beginning, at the end, and at the center. This is what real life is all about. Life is Christ. Life is Christ. But lastly... Our service and devotion to God must be wholehearted. It must be wholehearted. This was the thrust and point of what Jesus taught in verse 24. Listen to our Lord's words. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Here's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. My life is lived under the rule and reign of, and mastery of God Almighty. Nothing else masters me. Nothing else calls the shots, as it were, concerning the direction and ambition of where my life is going and what it is to be about. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, masters my life. That is at the heart of being a Christian. Hence, our devotion and service to God is to be wholehearted since God is our master. It is he alone who tells us what to think and feel, what to say and do, and where we should go. Nothing in this world has that kind of dominion over our lives but God. So then, on the heels of this teaching in verses 19 through 24, Jesus expresses to us by way of command, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. The effect of these words can be understood in this way. If God is your master, if your vision for life is centered on God and his kingdom, with your heart treasuring heavenly treasures rather than earthly treasures, then I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You see, what our Lord is pressing on us in the whole of this passage is that if our devotion and service is given to God and his purposes, then when it comes to our life and its necessities here in this world, we have no justified reason to be anxious. Our lives are in God's hands. He is our creator, master, our heavenly father, and he will thereby take care of all our needs. To be worried, therefore, about our life is both irrational and unreasonable, not to mention unbelieving for a child of God. But while we have this general scope 
of Jesus' teaching regarding anxiety in the Christian, we need to look more closely at how our Lord actually deliberates with us as to the irrationality and sinfulness of anxiety. What then are the reasons Jesus gives us as to why we should never be anxious? First of all, our Lord calls us to consider that our life is more than taking care of our physical needs. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? While we are not to be indifferent to food, drink, or clothing, and how can we be since these are necessities for living in this world, yet none of these things in life are to master our life. The necessities we have for living are to serve us, not rule us. They are to serve us, not rule us. In other words, life is not about what we need to live in this world. Life is not about food. It is not about drink. It is not about clothing. Such things are very important. They have the rightful place of service to each one of us, but they are not what determines the true value and estimate of our lives. Life is so much more than any of these things, and it is to this reason that our Lord commands us not to be anxious about such things. Now let's think about this. If in our own perception, life is about food, drink, or clothing, then eating in the most fashionable restaurants, cooking the most elegant meals, wearing the most expensive clothes, or the latest trends in clothing, these things, these things will consume our lives and determine whether we're happy or accepted or valuable in the least degree. This means, practically, that if such things are lost or destroyed or beyond our reach to possess, then we will be consumed with anxiety. Why? Because this is what we think life is about. But Jesus calls us to reflect how wrong, how wrong such thinking is. Our Lord says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, what our Lord wants us to see is that the fullness of life is so much more than taking care of our physical needs that relate primarily to our body. Yet this is how the world thinks, isn't it? Everything we see and hear from the world is all about how we can pamper the body, how we can decorate it, exercise it, protect it from disease and pain, build it up, slender it down, drape it with jewelry, keep it warm, keep it cool, train it to work and play, help it to get sleep, and a hundred other things. The world is consumed and driven by such carnal ambition, which always results in having great anxiety. Always. But for the Christian, for the Christian, for the child of God, this is not to be what we think life is all about. Hence, Jesus commands us, do not be anxious about your life. We have no right to be worried over whether or not we will have those necessary things to meet our physical needs. God has promised to supply all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Therefore, whether the Lord gives 
or takes away, we will always have our physical needs sufficiently met because the source of our life is not in food, drink, or clothing. The source of our life is in God. And saying this leads us to the second reason against anxiety. Our Lord calls us to consider the all-encompassing sovereign provision of our Heavenly Father. Looking at verses 26 to 30. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus was not a card-carrying member of PETA, obviously. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the, of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What I so appreciate about this section of our text is that it really exposes the fact that the problem with anxiety is a spiritual problem. It is a spiritual problem. It is not a mental illness. My dander goes so far up out into another hemisphere when I hear people, even in the visible church, talk about anxiety as a mental illness hogwash. That is a lie out of the pit. Jesus commands us not to be anxious. No, this isn't a mental illness. This is a sin problem. It's a sin problem. It is a sin of distrusting the sovereign provision and promise of God to meet all our physical needs. That's the problem with anxiety. And adding even more layers to how sinful anxiety is, consider what John MacArthur wrote. You think I'm hard? Listen to Johnny Mac. John MacArthur says, anxiety is not a trivial sin because it strikes a blow both in God's love and in God's integrity. Anxiety declares our Heavenly Father to be untrustworthy in His Word and His promises. To avow belief in the inerrancy of Scripture and in the next moment to express anxiety is to speak out of both sides of our mouths. Anxiety shows that we are mastered by our circumstances and by our own finite perspectives and understanding rather than by God's Word. Anxiety is therefore not only debilitating and destructive, but maligns and impugns God. Whew. Some heat from that. That's convicting. That is really convicting. So, to say it again, anxiety is a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem. Yes, it does affect how we think and feel. And yes, yes, it also can affect us physically as well. But 
at the core, anxiety is a spiritual problem because it is a problem of the heart. It is a problem of the heart. Our hearts are not fully and completely trusting in God to provide what He has promised. This is why right here in verse 30, Jesus indicts His own worried disciples as men of what kind of faith? Little faith. He said it, not me. Men of little faith. When we as Christians are gripped by anxiety, we are proving ourselves to be a people of little faith. This means that while we believe that God has saved us and will keep us saved in Jesus Christ, yet, yet, we do not trust Him to meet our daily needs. We have a difficult time praying to our Heavenly Father, give us this day our daily bread. Anxiety chokes the strength of such day-by-day faith in God for His ever-constant provision. This is why, therefore, our Lord Jesus turns our attention to the all-encompassing sovereign provision of our Heavenly Father to enable us to see and understand how needless and worthless it is to be anxious. In the first place, Jesus tells us to consider how sufficient God's provision is for the birds of the air. Look at the birds of the air, our Lord says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. The object lesson here is the fact that birds do not have any complex and intricate process and procedure for gathering their food. But instead, the resources for what they will eat is abundantly provided by our Heavenly Father. Now, Jesus is certainly not indicating that birds do nothing to find their food. By the, by the very instincts God created them with, they spend the greater part of their time and energy seeking out food for themselves, their mates, and their young. However, the glaring point which Jesus is making is that you never see birds worried. You never see them worried over Where's the next meal coming from? God is always providing for the birds of the air what they need to eat. Concerning the glory in this illustration, Martin Luther made this observation. You see, Jesus is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. Whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore, you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if he were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He has made heaven and earth, and he himself is the cook and the host. Every day he feeds and nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hand. But adding another layer to this illustration, yet in the form of a gentle rebuke, Jesus says to all of us, are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than they? What does our Lord want us to see by this rhetorical question? If our Heavenly Father so abundantly and sufficiently takes care of such relatively insignificant creatures as birds, then how much more will He take care of us who are created in His image 
and who have become His children through faith in His Son. The question answers itself. It is worthless to worry. In the second place, Jesus assures us that our life is fully in God's hands from the beginning to the end. Our Lord declares in verse 27, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Oh, this is a great rhetorical question. Uh, The point of this question has to do with the longevity of our life. But the implication undergirding the question is that our life from the first breath to the last is entirely in God's hands. In other words, God has bounded the life of every person. So exercise, good eating, and other common sense practices are beneficial when done in a reasonable way and looked at in the right perspective. They are no doubt they no doubt can improve the quality and productivity of our lives. But listen to this. All that good eating, all that exercise, will not force God into extending our span of life. Not one bit. Now connecting this truth with the problem of anxiety, our Lord's point is deeply profound and searching. Since our life has been designed and determined by God in every step we take, then everything we need to fulfill His purpose and carry out His plan, He has provided. No more, no less. Furthermore, once God's purpose is accomplished through us in this world, He will then take us home not an hour too soon or too late. Hebrews 9.27, you know that verse, what does it say? It is appointed unto man to die once. But the point of that verse in application to what we're looking at here in Matthew 6 is your time of leaving this world is appointed by God. It's, it's a divine appointment. So why should we ever worry or be anxious when our life in the whole is so firmly fixed and stable in God's hands? Summing up this point, consider what Martin Lloyd-Jones expressed. It is a great mystery, but we cannot escape it. Our times are in the hands of God and do what we will with all our food and drink and our medical profession and all our learning and science and skill, we cannot add a fraction to the duration of a man's life. In spite of all modern advances in knowledge, our times are still in the hands of God. And so, our Lord argues, why all the fuss and bother? Why all the excitement? Why all this worry and anxiety? Life is a gift from God. He starts it and determines the end of it. He sustains it, and we are in His hands. Therefore, when you tend to become worried and anxious, just pull yourself up at once and say, I cannot start or continue or end life. All this is entirely in His hands. If that greater thing is there in His control, 
I can leave the lesser also to him. Well put. In the third place, Jesus tells us to consider how sufficient God's provision is for the lilies of the field. In the same way that God provides food for the birds of the air, he also abundantly clothes the grass of the field, which Jesus reminds us neither toils nor spins to make their clothing. In other words, there is no effort whatsoever on the part of wild flowers to clothe itself in the beautiful colors it is arrayed with. Such beauty is nothing but the sovereign, all-sufficient creation and provision of God. However, the greater point here which our Lord is making is that if God bothers, as it were, to array the grass of the field with beautiful but short-lived flowers, then how much more is he concerned to clothe and care for his own children whom he has predestined for eternal life? Once again, we come face to face with how unnecessary and foolish it is for any of us to ever give our time to a single measure of anxiety. It simply shows that we are not walking by faith. We're not fully trusting God to meet all our needs, which he has graciously promised to do. Indeed, we're not taking him at his word. And that's really the bottom line right there. We're not taking God at his word. And with this point before us, we turn to the final reason Jesus gives against anxiety. Our Lord calls us to consider now that to be anxious is to be like the world without God. In verses 31 and 32, look at what Jesus says. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. When Christians worry, they act like the world. As John MacArthur pointed out, when we think like the world and crave like the world, we will worry like the world. Because a mind that is not centered on God is a mind that has cause to worry. So, this is what Jesus presses on our conscience here in Matthew 6, 31 and 32. To be anxious about what we'll eat, drink, and wear is to be worldly. This is worldliness. It is to seek after the very things which the Gentiles pursue. By the term Gentiles, Jesus is describing all unbelievers or pagans. Having a hope in God, the ambition and drive of every unbeliever is centered in themselves and what they can get from this world right here, right now. Why do you think Joel Osteen's book was so successful? Your best life when? Now? Hello? What a great marketing strategy to make him rich. Appealing to the flesh of men. The unbeliever, they have no God to supply their physical or their spiritual needs, their present or their eternal needs. So anything they get 
they must get for themselves. Furthermore, they are completely ignorant of God's supply and have no claim on it since they're outside of his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. This is the true plight of every unbeliever. And this is why all unbelievers are choked with anxiety. So when we as Christians give in to anxiety, we are denying who we are in Christ as God's children. And thereby we are denying our God. Who is our Heavenly Father knows what we need and is both able and willing to supply all our need to live in this world He has created. So then based on Matthew 6, 25-32, what are the reasons our Lord Jesus gives against anxiety? Three big reasons. Number one, our life is more than taking care of our physical needs. Number two, we must consider the all-encompassing sovereign provision of our Heavenly Father. And number three, to be anxious is to be like the world without God. These are the fundamental reasons Jesus sets forth for us as his people to stand against the sin of anxiety. But from the reasons against anxiety, let's now consider our final major point of study, and that is the remedy. The remedy for anxiety. Look with me in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Since anxiety is a spiritual problem, it therefore takes a spiritual remedy to conquer it. And the divine remedy which our Lord gives is a resetting and a reordering of our life priorities and ambitions. Rather than seeking first the things of this world, even those things that we need in this world, which only ensnare us to be crippled by anxiety, we must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is here where all our anxiety receives a mortal blow. So let's unpack what this means and how it looks. By seeking first the kingdom of God, we are driven by the supreme desire for the spread of the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Such a desire will start with ourselves until every single department of our life, home, marriage, family, personal morality, professional life, business, ethics, money, tax returns, lifestyle, citizenship, etc., etc. Such a desire, every single department of our life, is joyfully and freely submissive to Jesus Christ. Moreover, this desire for the spread of Christ's kingdom rule will continue through our service in the local church as we will help to build up the body of Christ to greater maturity and faith and seek to spread the fame of Christ to our immediate community and beyond. You see, when we are seeking first the kingdom of God, we are being mastered by the things of God as opposed to the things of this world. And by this, the things of this world do not rule us and therefore consume our every thought and feeling. Hence, we are freed from the grip of anxiety. To say this another way, since God's kingdom purposes have become what we treasure, 
then we are settled and content in God's providential care to supply all that we need to live in this world. But in addition to seeking first God's kingdom, we also see God's righteousness. Now, what does this mean? It means that we seek to conform our lives in greater consistency to God's righteous standard. We might could say it's living out the principles and precepts of what Jesus has expounded to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And this would be a more accurate interpretation of what our Lord means by the term righteousness since it is in keeping in the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount. So then... Seeking God's righteousness is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It is also seeking to live by the truth of what we are in Christ as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. By fleshing out a godly life through word and deed that slows down the process of the moral decay that is around us and bears witness to the truth of Christ. Furthermore, it is obeying God's moral law as opposed to relaxing the law and downplaying what God has commanded us to be and do. This means that we seek to be a people who are forgiving and reconciling as opposed to harboring murderous anger in our hearts toward others. We also seek to be self-controlled by maintaining sexual purity about the heart and the actions that will not even permit us gazing at others with lustful intent. Moreover, we strive to honor the sanctity of marriage by holding forth God's design that the man and woman he has joined together should not be severed through divorce. We will also seek to be a people whose words are credible because they have been proven as honest and worthy of trust. And whenever we are personally insulted, we will not give in to revenge by repaying evil for evil. Thus, when it comes to even our enemies, we will seek to show them love rather than hate. All of these examples are expounded to us by our Lord Jesus right here in the Sermon on the Mount as snapshots of what it means for God's people to live in the righteousness of his righteous standard. Therefore, when Jesus commands us in Matthew 6.33 to seek God's righteousness, our Lord is calling us to pursue a standard for living that unbelievers never pursue. It is conforming our lives to God's righteous standard. And when... And when our lives are more conformed to God's righteous standard, then the less will we be captivated by the things of this world and thereby the grip of anxiety will have no grip at all. Now in drawing his teaching to a close as it relates to the foolishness and worldliness of anxiety for the child of God, our Lord concludes in verse 34 with these words. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There are two lessons we should draw from this passage as it brings our study of Matthew 6, 25 through 34 to an end. First, a Christian should never be anxious about tomorrow since like the rest of his life, tomorrow with all its troubles are in God's hands. The Bible makes it clear that we do not know what tomorrow will bring. But the Bible also makes just as clear that God is in control of all that will happen 
when tomorrow comes. And this is where every Christian must find their rest and reliance when it comes to the future. It is in God who changes the times and the seasons and in whose book every day of our life has already been written before it ever existed. Moreover, whatever we will face in the future will never be against us but for us because God is working all things together for our good. So why then should a Christian ever be worried or anxious about the future? It is a waste of time. It is a waste of thought and nervous energy. Or as John R. W. Stott put it much more bluntly, it is distrustful of our Heavenly Father and it is frankly stupid. How do you appreciate that slap in the face? This is what pagans do. But it is, an utter, it is an utterly unsuitable and unworthy ambition for Christians. So the next time you're anxious, dear Christian, say to yourself, Why am I being so stupid right now? <laughs> Lesson number two. A Christian should never be anxious about today with all its troubles but rather prepare to meet them with his reliance and confidence fixed firmly in God's rule, power, and provision to get him through. This means very practically that if we're seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, then we will cast all our anxieties on him through prayer, trusting in the fulfillment of his promises to supply all that we need in every step we take. This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Anxiety, therefore, is never the norm for the child of God. It is a sin and it must be put to death. Our life is a life of faith and trust in a faithful and holy Father who loves us and has promised to keep us now and for all eternity. So... What our Lord teaches about anxiety in Matthew 6 should once and for all time prove to us as his people nothing could be more foolish, nothing could be more of a waste of time and energy. Nothing could be more stupid than to be anxious. Because all it says about me in this moment as a Christian is, you are not walking by faith. You are walking by sight. So don't go pop a pill. Repent. Repent. That is the remedy. That is what God commands us to do. And who cares what secular psychology says? That is of the world. It is pagan. It is godless. They want to call it a mental illness? Well, that's what unbelievers do. 
who don't think there's any such thing as sin. But all they're doing and all they ever do is put a band-aid on the real problem. And the real problem never goes away. God takes care of the real problem. And so as his people who know that, yes, we all know that as Christians, we need to increase our faith in the Lord and trust him, not just in saving us from our sins and making sure we get to heaven, but providing for us every single day of our life for everything, for everything. We walk by faith, not by sight. Amen. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, what a great, awe-inspiring, glorious, eternal God you are. We cannot comprehend you, Lord. We can only apprehend you. But we do humbly, in response to your word tonight, ask your forgiveness by the blood and righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. For every time, Lord, as your people, that we have yielded to that work of the flesh called anxiety. Forgive us for every time, Father, that we have not trusted you with the whole of our hearts, that we have not walked by faith, but instead we have given ourselves over to walking by sight, only to find ourselves even more anxious, even more worried. But Father, you have revealed to us tonight, you have illuminated our understanding according to the truth of your word that nothing could be more stupid than for us to be anxious. What foolishness this sin is, as any sin, of course. But Lord, we trust in you tonight that by the working of the indwelling spirit, by his sanctifying power, that we will repent. We'll repent of our lack of faith and trust in you. We'll repent of our unbelief. And that we will, by your grace, Lord, learn each and every day to roll all our cares on you because you do care for us, as you say. And truly, because our times are always in your hands. And therefore, you will supply all that we need according to your limitless riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We trust afresh in you, Lord, for all such things because we trust afresh in you this night. For the sake of our Lord Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen. And amen.
so I see it's 748 and I don't care um, 